You're listening to Courting Justice, a production of Neighborhood Christian Legal Clinic in Indianapolis, with your host, Ashley Cavetta. And now for part one of our podcast on immigration and refugees. Today's guests are one of our staff attorneys, Rachel Van Tile. She works with the Immigrant Justice Program. And then we also have Megan Hockbein from Exodus Refugee. Uh, and I'd like to maybe start by just hearing a little bit about what each of you does at your organization. So why don't we start with you, Megan? I am the Director of Outreach and Immigration Services with Exodus, um, which means that I support our community engagement programs. I do a lot of um, education in the community about uh, what a refugee is and uh, the services that our organization provides. And within the immigration services portion of my job, I have um, Board of Immigration Appeals accreditation so that I can provide uh, legal services, uh, primarily assisting our clients with um, applying for their green cards or um, petitioning for family members that are overseas. Interesting. I didn't know that you did legal work as well. And then Rachel? Rachel. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. um, So I'm the staff attorney for the Immigrant Justice Program. Um, which seeks to serve immigrants, um, you know, of all varieties, but especially refugees. I do a lot of casework, a lot of asylum, a lot of citizenship. Now, I've I've worked at the clinic for a couple of years, and I started out working as an immigration paralegal. And just in the past several years, I've seen a lot of changes. And so I was hoping maybe you could just start us out by giving us a little bit of a rundown. What differentiates a refugee from an asylee, for instance? There are two kinds of people immigrants to the United States, there's immigrants and non-immigrants. So those are people who, immigrants are people who intend to reside permanently in the United States. Non-immigrants are people who are coming here for some sort of of specific purpose, like education or travel or something like that. Mm -hmm. So we have those two kinds of visas. And then we also have humanitarian options, which are where you get your refugees. A refugee Um, is somebody who has a well-founded fear of persecution based on race, religion, political opinion, nationality, or membership in a particular social group. And that designation is made outside the United States, both by the UNHCR, which is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, and the State Department. An asylee meets the same definition, so they meet the same definition of they have a well-founded fear of persecution based on race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or social group. But that designation is made inside the United States by um, either USCIS, which is U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, or the Executive Office for Immigration Review, which is the immigration court system. So the biggest difference would be who designates them. And where it is. Okay, interesting. Whether they're already in the United States or without the United States. Right. Now, I know that you are from Exodus Refugee, Megan, so that would imply that you're working with refugees, but do you work with asylees as well or any other groups? Correct. We work with refugees, um, individuals who have been granted asylum, not anyone who is in the process of uh, seeking asylum, um, and then as well, certified victims of human trafficking. Um, How long has Exodus been around? 35 years. Wow, 35 years. One of the things that I read is that the process for an immigrant um, rep- entering the United States is that it can often take between 18 and 36 months. Yes, I, I, I would agree that uh, it is at least that long, if not longer. So they go through some extensive background checks. Can you talk to me a little bit about 
the process that someone goes through who is a refugee? So we know refugees are the most uh, most vetted uh, person to travel to the United States. They have the most rigorous screening process. And it starts by first being identified as a refugee under the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. So there's a, an interview with a UNHCR officer um, in their country of asylum uh, or their host country overseas after they've fled their home country. They may or may not be, be granted refugee status by UNHCR. And then uh, UNHCR has, I think, roughly now 20 million refugees uh, they're providing um, protection and care for. Um, of that 20 million, likely less than 1% will be referred for resettlement to a third country, such as the U.S. The United States uh, accepts referrals from UNHCR of individuals and families most in need of resettlement, which starts the interview, the, the screening process. So there's a series of interviews, uh, several layers of security clearance, and there's a medical screening in order to be approved um, and invited to the United States. So they are absolutely here legally. They've been approved, not only approved, but they've been extremely vetted. Correct. We know more about them than probably a lot of our citizens. Oh, definitely. But you know, you hear clients say, well, I was in a refugee camp for... 10 years, you know, a lot of, I think the majority of the Bhutanese people, so the people from Bhutan have been resettled now, mm -hmm. but a lot of them were in, in a uh, refugee camp in Nepal for 15 plus years. Wow. So it's not like, the other thing, I, the other misconception I think that people have about refugee processing is it's like they walk up to somebody and go, I want to come to the United States. I, I'm afraid to go back. And then like two weeks later, they're on a plane to the United States. Mm -hmm. It does not work like that. It's a long and rigorous process. And they actually don't get anything for free either, really. I mean, Correct. they have to take out a loan to pay for their plane ticket from the wow. International Organization for Migration. So they, and then they have to repay that plane ticket. So it's not like, you know, the U.S. is footing this huge bill of saying, oh, great, let's bring all these people to the United States. You know, there's a really rigorous process that takes a really long time, and people have to be committed. Everything that we've talked about right now is obviously legal immigration. But I think that there's some confusion about the difference between legal immigration and illegal immigration. I know that we also try to help certain people who are illegal get papers so mm -hmm. that they can be here legally. Yeah. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Sure. Um, my first point will be that I don't like to call people illegal. Okay. I think um, that actions can be illegal, but people themselves are not illegal. So I prefer to refer to those people as undocumented, mm -hmm. even though they sometimes it will refer to themselves as illegal. Mm -hmm. It's I just think it's a point of respect that we're all human beings. We're mm -hmm. all created in God's image. Like we need to be respectful of that and that people themselves aren't illegal. Mm -hmm. um, but we do try to help those people to in whatever capacity we can. Um, I often just see my job as I have to advocate from the best in my client. And if the law provides an avenue, then my job as an attorney is to provide that, to help them navigate that avenue. Um, and so we do some, you know, deferred action for childhood arrivals or things like that where kids who are brought to the United States as, a, as really young, um, who really, they, they tell me these stories of, Mom and Dad said we were going on a trip. I got in the car. I woke up. I was in the United States. Like, they have no mm -hmm. idea how they got here. They were four or five years old, and they've lived in this country their whole life. So mm -hmm. I really feel like, you know, we have an obligation to try and help mm -hmm. those people as much as we can. And they're and running I, into difficulties then because they oh, find, right. like, oh, I'm undocumented. Well, and so. sometimes they don't know. They, like, mm -hmm. literally don't know until they go to apply for college that their mom goes, oh, 
by the way, you're not documented. Like, that they don't have any idea that they've been undocumented wow. this whole time. Because they've always grown up thinking that they were an American. Okay. You know, and they're totally integrated into the society. So I think that that's one thing. Um, then the other thing you see is actually a lot of people who, at least recently, a lot of people who have tried to cross the southern border are not doing so with the intention of trying to cross illegally. They are coming to the United States asking for protection, and then they're let in, but they're still considered like undocumented individuals. Okay. So they're not. In a, they're asking for protection because they can't go back. They're asylum seekers. And then what are the instances when maybe someone is undocumented, but there isn't an avenue for them to become documented. I mean, there are a lot of those options. There, right? are. there are a lot of that. A lot of that happens. Um, but I think that our job as service providers is to be tr truthful and say, "Look, there are no good options for you," you know. And um, and I think that we've done that enough that we have some credibility in the community, and people know that they can come to us and say. I just want to know if there's any options and we can say, you know, honestly, there aren't. And it's not that we're not willing to help people, but I feel like we have a duty to be honest. And sometimes saying no is as important as saying yes. I remember when I was working in immigration, sometimes I would have to call people and tell them that there were no options and it was really hard, but it was like, at least you know that you're getting the truth from someone. Right. You know, we're not just going to say, oh yeah, you can do this. Give us money. We'll right. help you. Exactly. Exactly. Obviously, there's always going to be people who want to take advantage of someone if they can. And But we can just do our part, right? Like, we can just do our part mm -hmm. in saying, sorry, there really aren't any options. Mm -hmm. And it does not mean I can stop every person from giving away their money, but if I can help stop them. one or two, yeah. that's good, you know? Mm-hmm. What kind of benefits, and I'll start with you, Megan, about this question, um, do refugees receive how long do they receive them yeah so they do the with regard to the the travel loan it's a promissory note that they sign overseas before they're allowed to travel and um, they have to start repaying on that loan uh, generally around their sixth month after having arrived in the united states and uh, it is a loan through the international organization for migration it gets paid back to the uh, national agency in the u.s who helped coordinate their travel. It's important because refugees, for one, don't have credit in the United States, mm -hmm. so it allows them to establish credit history so that when they need to rent an apartment on their own... That's a good point. Um, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, when they need to rent an apartment on their own, they have that uh, They have a record, yeah, so that's literally like their first way of establishing credit in Correct. the United States. Correct. The loan is, uh, it's big. It's about $1,000 per person, so a family of seven arrives typically over $7,000 in debt into the United States. Uh, really to benefits refugees, it, it varies uh, by individual and by family and, and okay. circumstance, but typically in Indiana are qualified for refugee Medicaid, generally for around eight months. If and when they start reporting income, that may change their eligibility. They also, again, depending on income and situation, qualify for SNAP benefits for food stamps. Mm -hmm. And then same with either refugee cash assistance or for TANF. But again, just like the general population, eligibility is based on, on income and, and family composition and those types of things. And it only lasts for a certain amount of time, too. Correct. Uh, the, the refugees really, the goal of the program is self-sufficiency. We want people okay. within a few months to be working and, and become independent and, and able to pay their bills mm -hmm. on their own. So once they start reporting income, um, refugees typically at least see a decrease in their benefits, if not that they're just simply no longer eligible. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine how challenging that must be, too? Like, 
you'd get dropped in a country where you don't speak the language, probably, most likely. And you're expected to be totally self-sufficient within about six months. Like, shoot, I'm not four. totally self-sufficient right. most days, you know? Right. I, I'm often, I, you know, I, I teach uh, freshmen often, like, English classes, uh, and they're not self-sufficient mm-hmm. within, right? within the, you know, first right. two semesters of being at college. They're still like, wait, I didn't know this test was tomorrow. Right. Yeah. So I think it's like, I just often try to put myself in a refugee's shoes and I think, okay, well, you know, what if you were on a plane for the first time and then you get arrive in a country and you don't speak the language and just the trauma of whatever happened that made you flee, mm-hmm. which is often civil war, you know, mm-hmm. and they've seen people die and it's like, you can't imagine that. Well, I have a, a story about a client, um, a, kind of a, a family, a larger family, seven or eight, I can't remember exactly, but they had lived in a refugee camp in Africa for quite some time, and I picked them up at the airport and brought them back to their apartment and was, was doing the orientation of how to use the light switch and lock the door and be safe in your home, and was uh, advising them that the next morning someone was coming to pick them up for an appointment. So was setting an alarm on the phone so that mm-hmm. they would wake up and they would be ready. And the father asked me, do I need to tell the, the leasing office that I, I will be leaving? So having lived in a camp without freedom to move, mm-hmm. to go anywhere without permission, was just this, uh, you know, was a concept for him that he, he almost couldn't imagine. Mm-hmm. And I, um, he was used to having to check in with somebody right. always. Yeah, because no, they're not allowed you know, to leave the refugee camps you're, without. You're free here. Exodus and Catholic Charities do a great job of just really trying to orient them and doing, um, I know you guys do the cultural, cultural. meal. Uh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you want to. Yeah, and I, I was actually going to say this is a great segue. I wanted to know a little bit about how you help refugees successfully integrate to a new city and culture what what kind of ongoing support are you guys able to offer them it starts literally at the at the airport so we are responsible for welcoming people as they get off the plane in indianapolis and depending on whether or not they already have a, a established tie here they may be greeted by an old friend or family members or they may not know anyone in our city and we are the the face of welcome for folks who will be living in an apartment that we've set up for them then we will take them back to the apartment it's a a fully furnished apartment uh, depending on the the size of the family and uh, like Rachel was alluding to before we go through an orientation maybe they cooked on a gas stove their whole life but Mm -hmm. now it's an electric stove or um, the thermostat sometimes is new for folks particularly because we don't use the metric system here where's where do I where will I do my laundry where can I do my grocery shopping where am I going to catch the bus Um, how do I report a problem with my um, my you know, my apartment, where Mm -hmm. do I go for things like that? So that's typically done within the first day to two days, kind of an orientation to the home and the the neighborhood. Quick question, do you help them, are are the apartments that you get them settled into like apartments that are run by Exodus or do you get them into any apartments in Indianapolis? They they are any apartment uh, that that is available and affordable and accessible to a bus line and considered to be safe and in a uh, good school school system that can work Mm -hmm. well with ESL students, close to a grocery store, so there's a lot of factors involved. And I think that being said, there are certain communities, like certain apartments are more willing to work with Exodus than others. So you start to see pockets of populations, like all the Somalis live here, or, you know, and I think that's part of it too, is Mm -hmm. just 
getting them in a yeah. community where they're, they feel safe and they have people around them. Ideally, the lease goes into the client's name. Uh, generally, they're signing on to a year lease. So again, when you're thinking about culture shock and expectations to now be presented with a year-long lease and your payment is due on the first of the month, and if you leave early, you'll mm-hmm. be penalized. Um, so it's a lot of uh, overwhelming information. So upfront, we're doing a lot of education. We have a, a workshop on financial readiness where they're talking about banking and writing checks and paying taxes. Uh, Everyone gets an individualized budget that says their rent, their estimated average utilities, their travel loan payment, and then uh, sets a target wage for that family. So saying Mm -hmm. these are your expenses that we are aware of. This is what your family will need to earn in order to become Mm self-sufficient. There's a two-day cultural orientation workshop where we talk about U.S. laws and health and hygiene and education and transportation. Everyone, every adult anyways, is uh, trained on taking Indigo, trained on taking the bus Uh at the start of that workshop. So they ride with one of our staff in the morning to the uh, class and they ride home with a staff member and the next day they come on their own. Most of the time people are grouped at a stop so there's a little bit of support. And I think there's a role for the clinic in that too like we can help with sometimes you know Megan comes with me with legal issues Mm -hmm. immigration issues Mm -hmm. or she'll go see the tax department about Mm -hmm. tax issues Mm -hmm. because that is very confusing Mm -hmm. tax law is very confusing for a lot of people so (laughs) yeah so um and we know that the the clinic has advocated on and on housing issues as well oh right uh, periodically had some um some concerns about how clients have been treated i think you know the clinic has a a good partnership with exodus and can provide some legal support to refugees in in Mm -hmm. in the initial orientation stages even Mm mm-hmm we don't typically see as much a role yeah and then I obviously you're helping people if they want to apply for their green cards and right all that later Um, on like the 485 yeah but that is after a year that's after a year so normally you know we see clients well about a year after they've been here Mm -hmm. typically when we first will see Mm -hmm. refugees um who wants to be petitioning for a family member right unless Mm -hmm. they're petitioning for a family member and I think that that is something that you know, one of my goals is to make that program better known mm-hmm. um, about how they can bring their family here because mm-hmm. a lot of them just don't realize it. And there's a time limit of two years mm-hmm. from arrival. So if they don't know and then we're up against a deadline and we're trying to get documents from a home country, you know, we can really miss an opportunity there to bring somebody yeah. quickly. In, in terms of immigration, those um, family reunifications for refugees are incredibly fast, like five to six months for approval and then probably another 18 months and then they get here. So you have like some cultural mm-hmm. workshops or seminars. Mm-hmm. What other kinds of things? I think you were about to say something else. Oh, I mean, just in general, every newly arrived refugee is assigned to a case manager and the case manager assists with some basic things like getting a social security card, applying for public assistance benefits, going to the health department for a, a preliminary screening. They've, they've been cleared medically overseas, but there's some follow-up immunizations and things mm-hmm. that take place here. Um, getting everyone assigned to a primary care physician and getting them into a, a medical home here, um, enrolling children in school. And then again, with the goal of self-sufficiency, employment is critical. So every client sits down with an employment specialist and they go through what we call a service plan and they talk about the client's educational background, their work experience. Do they have any barriers to employment at this time? Maybe it's a single parent with four kids who aren't school age. So how are we gonna work out childcare so that that mom or dad can work? And uh, coming up with a plan of action so that that we can help them to find employment. And 
when does your relationship with the refugees end after they get employed or so we we can actually serve refugees for the most part up to five years from our organization um, we have a mental wellness program mm -hmm. uh, so we have a licensed therapist on staff and she actually can continue to see clients after five years if needed but uh, typically our services are about five years the tricky part is that we we might provide financial assistance up front four months of rent, for example, and then that's when our financial assistance typically stops. But we can continue to serve people through our classes and through our employment services. We have a women's program. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a program that works with clients with special medical needs. Um, so they can receive case management services, but generally that financial assistance ends pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. It sounds too then like obviously you guys can just be a good hub for information. Like if they're like, we don't know what to do. This new thing has arisen and we need some help. And their case manager can be someone who can offer them some insight or... Yeah, I think people, they they, they know us. Um, yeah. So they're comfortable coming back. So we get questions about, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go to college. Can you help me to apply for college? Or I'm looking to buy a house. Do you have any suggestions of mm -hmm. what I might do? So general questions mm -hmm. uh, we, we get pretty frequently. Interesting. Um, I was going to ask, Megan, do you have a lot of people who come in with a lot of education that doesn't transfer? Like I see, you know, especially with some of our Middle Eastern mm -hmm. immigrants where they're like, they're doctors and mm -hmm. things like that, and then they can't mm -hmm. do that here. I don't know of the percentage of, of people with like higher education or master's or uh, professional certifications, mm -hmm. um, but we definitely see it. I know on our, we're a staff of about 42 people and three of my colleagues who are who are from Burma and Iraq, um, engineers and doctors. Um, if people have been able to bring their documents, if they have their diplomas, if they have their credentials, if they were able to save them or somehow get them, then uh, we send them off to a service that that does the equivalents. Uh, I forget what it's called. ECE. Yeah. I can't remember what it stands for. Um, and then they will report to them. You know, this. You, you were a doctor mm -hmm. in your home country, but here's where you would need to start. Sounds like obviously language is going to be one of the biggest barriers because certainly a refugee's mm -hmm. not been like, oh, I'm going to go to America in a couple years. I'm going to start <laughs> studying English now. We teach classes at our office. We have an intensive program. Uh, students can come four days a week, three hours a day, and it's just ongoing. They come as they're available. They take the bus. And then we offer what we call our community classes, which are in, uh, they're sometimes in churches or apartment complexes. Definitely eager learners. Um, as adults, it's obviously much harder to learn a language than it is as a, as a child, particularly if you can only commit a few hours a week uh, to studying. But I would say people are very dedicated to, to learning mm -hmm. English. I think that's great that you go in the community too, because I think one of the big barriers to learning that is like access, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't know what's there or mm -hmm. I don't know how to get there. Mm -hmm. So it's important that we host them not only in you know, in your building, but mm -hmm. out in the community themselves mm -hmm. so that we can really increase that proficiency. Because mm -hmm. remember, people are going to have to be proficient in order to navigate here. Mm -hmm. And eventually, if they want to become a citizen, they need to be able to speak, you know, at least in a fifth grade level, really, of, of English. I was interested a little bit about what kind of numbers we're seeing of refugees that are coming to the U.S. and specifically to Indianapolis and where 
the refugees are coming from. So through Exodus in this fiscal year, which runs October 1 to October 1, 2015 to mm-hmm. September 30th, 2016, we anticipate around 900 refugees. And um, I think in... Catholic Charities, which is the other resettlement agency here in Indianapolis, I think their target right now is around 600, 650, roughly 600. Okay. So that would make for about 1,500 refugees. Most of our clients are from uh, originally from Burma. And then our second largest population are families from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Okay. And uh, our third largest population would be Syrian. I was looking at a, a report from the Department of State that was saying that about in, at least in Indiana, 80% of the refugees that we're seeing are from Burma. And then you said the next one, I think, was Democratic Republic of Congo. That's only about like 5%. So there's a huge Burmese population. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Why are so many Burmese people coming to Indiana? Mm-hmm. Or why do certain people groups go to certain states? My understanding of, of how the, the Burmese population grew in Indianapolis is that refugees have resettled here from Burma for over 10 years. Specifically, there were a number of students from Burma who were given a scholarship opportunity to study at Indiana universities, uh, Ball State and I think ISU and Indiana University, and they obtained their degrees here. They were granted political asylum. But there was a small community of uh, Burmese and English speakers to be quite honest. So mm-hmm. when refugees had an opportunity to come to the United States from Burma, there was an established community who could provide language access uh, to that population. Indianapolis has proven to be a pretty welcoming city. It is very affordable uh, for families. There are economic opportunities. So as, as refugees have uh, continued to come, not only have they come directly through agencies like Exodus and uh, Exodus and Catholic Charities, but they have also become what we call secondary migrant refugees. So they might resettle initially into Chicago or Fort Worth or Phoenix, but they know that there's a large community of refugees from Burma already established in Indianapolis. So then they move. Like Rachel said, they're, they're free to leave and, and, and move where they want. Um, so many, many people have made their homes here as secondary migrant refugees as well. The U.S. State Department wants to send people where they see them as a long-term, exactly. it's a long-term viable option for them to remain there. So the U.S. has an interest in placing them in a place where they're not going to feel outside. So once a, one population starts, you start to see more and more people come from that mm-hmm. group because that's part of kind of the economic plan of the State Department. It's funny, as a state, we're well known in, in Burma. Yes. Um, the former, <laughs> or Aung San Suu Kyi, who's the prime minister of Burma, you know, came, when she was released from house arrest, she went to go pick up her Nobel Prize, she went to D.C. to get her Congressional Medal of Honor, and then she came to Fort Wayne, Indiana to speak. Because there are so many Burmese refugees here and they speak about it in Burma. Mm-hmm. So I think that that really says something about like why people want to continue to come here is because they know like, it's you know, maybe they know L.A. But they're like, oh, Indiana, that's where all my people are. You know, so <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that in part that's it, too, is that they want to put them in communities where they Absolutely. have family and friends because they're more likely to stay there. Mm-hmm. And most of our, so the largest population of those from Burma in Indianapolis are, uh, again, the Chin and almost all of our chin cases are what we call U.S. Thai cases. So they, again, they have a family member here or a, a friend in the community uh, that actually they listed on their paperwork overseas. Right. Um, 
and we have an obligation as an agency when we get that information to contact that person here locally and mm-hmm. say, so-and-so has provided your information. Are you their brother? And do yeah. you, are you going to help them integrate? Yeah. Have you so, ever had a case where the person didn't know that that person was still alive? Not that I know. I know that Catholic Did Charities ever- had a case where they didn't. They were oh contacted, gosh. and the guy didn't know his wife was still alive. Oh, my god! And he, they go, she listed that you're here, and he goes, he's she still alive. <laughs> oh my so he had no idea that oh. his, his wife and child were still alive. Yeah. Gosh, that must have been awesome <laughs> to yeah. be there yeah. that moment. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for being our guests today and talking about this really interesting topic, and I think one that... A lot of people don't know very much about. I know that I learned a lot sitting here, so thank you very much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to part one of our podcast on immigration and refugees. Be sure to subscribe to get updates when part two is released in September. And now for the Legal Minute, where real attorneys answer real questions from listeners like you. Answering today's tweet is our very own executive director and attorney, Chris Purnell. Well, thanks at Sarah Kuzma for tweeting at us after our last Courting Justice podcast. You wrote, I want to know how the clinic fights foreclosures and what you think about lending practices now. Both really great questions. As far as what the clinic does with fighting foreclosures is we are a housing counseling agency with the Indiana Foreclosure Prevention Network. So we employ both housing counselors and attorneys And we help administer what's called the Hardest Hit Fund, which uh, provides financial assistance to struggling homeowners who are are unable to pay their mortgage for any number of reasons, including job loss, illness, death in the family, that sort of thing. Um, We stopped 490 foreclosures in 2015, so it's, it's a very prolific program. And the way people get hooked up with us and other housing counseling agencies in the state is through calling 877-GET-HOPE. You can also go online to 877gethope.org, um, and that's how you uh, get connected with the housing counseling agency in your neighborhood um, if you need help with foreclosure assistance. As far as the lending practices that are that are currently here, um, rates are at historic lows, and so it now is a is a an optimum time to 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 get cheap and easy money. Um, but as far as uh, what caused us to go into this this financial tailspin in the first place back in 2008, um, where uh, loans were packaged together into collateralized debt obligations, which were then bought and sold, um, it, those are coming back into vogue now. And uh, it just shows that what the Bible says is true, that there really is nothing new under the sun. If you are thinking about buying a home, though, and you just don't know where to start, and you don't want to get in over your head with these, and they're, it's, it's a very big deal, uh, you can contact the Indianapolis Neighborhood Housing Partnership if you're in the Indianapolis area, um, INHP, and they do great work with those who are, who are thinking of buying a home. So great question, and uh, keep tweeting at us. We love it. For a chance to have your question answered on our next podcast, please tweet us your questions at nclegalclinic. Hashtag courting justice. Thank you for listening to Courting Justice, a production of Neighborhood Christian Legal Clinic. Don't forget to follow us on social media at NC Legal Clinic.